Would you stand as you are able for the reading of the gospel? The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And as he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Well, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. And when they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm not Kindle. Uh, I will be reading some of her words and some of my own, and it'll be a fun guessing game for you, which or which. So last night at our church's screening of the Netflix special, Nanette, we heard Hannah Gadsby talking about her sense of identity. She pointed out that often the categories of identity that we try to squeeze people into aren't really helpful. She talked about how people will identify her as a comedian, sure, as a lesbian, that's great, and about someone who even informed her that she was transgender, which she's not, so that was news to her. And we heard her confess that if it was all right, she really wanted to, to just come out and share her true identity with us. She wanted to identify as tired. And I wonder how many of you are tired. In this passage from Mark, Jesus says to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And if you're anything like me, those are words you desperately need to hear Jesus saying to you, too. And yet I'm not always sure when to rest or how. How much rest is enough? Is it okay to rest even when things appear to be falling apart? Should I be resting when there's someone who needs my help? Jesus says to his disciples, come with me and get some rest. But then we can't help but notice what happens next. Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. The people were waiting for them when they arrived at their resting place. This was attempted rest, but it was interrupted. Reading a story like this, we can't help but ask the question, is this the fate of the true disciple? Always tired, never free of interruption? 
the text says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I love that Jesus had compassion. But what if I can't? What if I'm too tired? What if I have compassion fatigue? Is the answer to keep pushing forward and to ask for God-like strength? Or is the answer to slow down and admit my human limitations? Well, as any parent knows, and as the story of Mrs. Large the Elephant clearly demonstrates, you simply cannot always get rest when you need it. Sometimes there are other priorities that we must put first. But, as anyone who has experience of any kind with burnout knows, we cannot ignore our need for rest indefinitely, or we will crash. Often, we try to look to the stories in the Bible for the moral of the story, for instructions on how we're supposed to live our lives. This gospel story is not cut out for that kind of treatment. Sometimes I think we have to hear the stories that are like this as a story, as an account of a thing that happened. And gosh, doesn't that thing that happened resonate with things that happen to you too? Much like our own lives, this gospel story is full of tension. And it is this tension between rest and works of compassion that we're exploring together today. We know that there is no one-size-fits-all answer, no formula for maintaining a well-rested body and soul. We're all on this journey. And so it seemed best to us today, even before Kindle was sick, that rather than listening to a sermon, perhaps we would do better to hear one another's stories about that tension between rest and work learning from one another, and remembering that we are not alone. I learned about rest from my mom. My mom worked while we were growing up, which was not unheard of then, but was a little bit unusual. And maybe because of that, she was vigilant about protecting her precious time for rest. When she got home from work, she did not feel obligated to do a bunch of other stuff. The enemy of rest in my mom's vocabulary is what she called mess. As in, when I get home from work, I don't want to mess with a bunch of mess. (laughs) So she enlisted my sister and me in the resistance against mess when we were young. For example, at the beginning of the school year, when my sister and I were little, she would sit us down and get right on our level and look us in our precious little faces and say, do not sign me up for anything. (laughs) Do not sign me up for room mother. 
or Girl Scouts, or to bake cupcakes, or to be on any committee, and absolutely do not sign me up to sell anything. I don't want to mess with a bunch of school mess. The same approach applied to church mess and political mess and all kinds of other messes you can imagine. So when I grew up, I followed the same pattern that I learned from her. The key to rest is to dodge messing with mess. Uh, And so I was great at it for a long time, (laughs) but now I'm terrible at it. (laughs) My troubles with rest started in 2006. Um, I blame this church. (laughs) I've talked before about the life-changing experience I had as a result of a trip to New Orleans with our youth from Lakeshore. I won't go into the whole long story, but the short version of it is... When I went to New Orleans, I was able to rest, but I came back restless. When I got back to Waco, I felt convicted to learn more about what it means to be part of a community. I felt convicted that things were not as fair and good as they should be, and I had at least some responsibility to work on that. I started trying to figure out what I should be doing, and then I started to do things. My life is much richer now. It is also much busier. I am much more tired. It turns out that getting involved in the community leads to that thing that my mom avoided at all costs, messing with a bunch of mess. And messing with a bunch of mess eats into nap time. In the course of the years since New Orleans, I've tried to reclaim my rest time by weeding out a lot of unnecessary activity. House cleaning and yard work went out the window years ago. (laughs) Cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, I'm not sure that was ever really on the list, so I didn't gain much there. (laughs) Rigorous attention to the actual paying job. Last year, I gave up keeping up with email, super helpful. Personal hygiene, hanging on by a slender thread. Still, I don't seem to be getting the rest that I need. I'm anxious about things I never used to worry about. I forget things, fairly important things, like what is my address? And what is the word for that white stuff you pour on cereal? We need more of that. I eat way more junk food than I should. I cuss a lot. (laughs) I cry at inconvenient times. These are signs to me that I need more rest. I recognize the need. I just haven't quite figured out what to do about it. If I'm honest, I know that this busyness is just a symptom. There's a deeper issue. There's a faith element to the ability to rest that goes beyond time management. I think before going to New Orleans, I had a very primal, deep, foundational faith that if we all just relax, most problems will work themselves out in the end. That foundational faith 
made it easier, at least, for me to rest. In New Orleans, I developed a crack in that foundation. I left New Orleans believing instead that things usually work out for me (laughs) because I am lucky enough to be a financially secure white person. Things do not always just work out for a whole bunch of other people. As I've become more involved in my community here in Waco, the crack in my foundation has gotten bigger. I've learned that things crumble and get worse if you don't work on them. I've learned that the default is often ugliness unless someone puts in the time to work for beauty. I've learned that there's a lot of work to do, a lot of mess that somebody needs to mess with, an eternal to-do list that never gets shorter. I miss the ignorant, blissful, relaxing faith I used to have, but that weighs close to me now. I can't unlearn what I learned in New Orleans and have learned since. I have to find a different way to rest, a different kind of faith. I feel like I'm starting to find patches of that new kind of faith, but I haven't made a big enough quilt to take a really good nap under it yet. Maybe soon. sat in a cardiologist's office, tapping my foot on the ground nervously, waiting for the doctor to make his appearance. Looking around the examination room at the cross-sections of hearts and diagrams of the cardiovascular system did little to distract me from the 50-pound weight that sat on my chest where my heart used to be. After what felt like years and years, The doctor finally knocked and stepped in. And with a business-as-usual voice, he explained to me that he hadn't seen anything wrong, that he really couldn't explain the increasingly frequent spells of tightness in my chest and heart palpitations. I couldn't accept that, though. The onslaught of anxiety and panic attacks gave me a desperation that would not let me leave that office with nothing. Well, he said, I could write you a prescription that might be good for one or two panic attacks, but really, I'd just go find some Bible verses that calm you down. (laughs) Duh. Why hadn't I thought of that? Thanks, doctor, I replied, my hope wearing thin, and I left. Several weeks before that appointment, Claire and I had been in Bellmead at World Farm Day, enjoying weaving through the animals and the kids, having fun. But as we walked, I started to realize that something was making me uneasy. I was running through lists in my head of things that maybe I'd forgotten to do, but I kept coming up with nothing, and still the nervousness remained. When we got back home, I sat down on a swing by myself for a little while, determined to calm down. And it worked. 
until I stood up again, and then everything came falling back. Days went by, and nothing got any better. And I knew I needed to seek help when a panic attack, something I'd never experienced before, forced me to leave a movie theater only 20 minutes into a movie, convinced I was having a heart attack. And that's where the unhelpful cardiologist came in. I was anxious all the time. And I started to get anxious about how anxious I was feeling. And that made it worse. And then I started wondering, is it going to be like this forever? Am I ever going to feel any relief? And that opened a door to despair, which turned into depression. And the relentless snowball got bigger and bigger. And I wasn't sure what started it, nor did dwelling on that question help anything. I just started a new job at Lakeshore. Uh, I was moving into a new year at seminary. I had recently had my first major health scare, but what sparked all this is anybody's guess. I went to see a counselor eventually, but either he didn't know how to help me or I didn't know how to listen, but that ended up coming to nothing. And what I thought of as self-care, which was eating comfort food and watching copious amounts of Netflix, didn't help. Go figure. There are these song lyrics from a musical called Next to Normal, uh, and I've since discovered that they express that experience most fully. And a character sings, it's the sensation that you're screaming, but you never make a sound, or the feeling that you're falling, but you never hit the ground. Like a refugee, a fugitive, forever on the run, if it gets me, it will kill me, but I don't know what I've done. I don't believe in divine intercession. At least I don't think I do. I can't believe in a God that intervenes and orchestrates specific events for the unfolding of some particular plan. But I do believe in a God that doesn't waste suffering. And that, as Leonard Cohen said, it's through the cracks that the light comes in. As it happened, that summer I began preparing for a course called Wilderness Spirituality. And it involved a group pilgrimage to a remote monastery in New Mexico called Christ in the Desert. And the preparation for that course involved the study and practice of fixed-hour liturgical prayer, which was totally new to me. So I began to pray. And it saved my life. In the morning, I'd wake up and I'd pray a morning office from common prayer, taking my time and trying to find some sense of orientation in our ancient stories. And then after lunch, I'd find a quiet, out-of-the-way place at Truett to pray an office and practice mindfulness meditation using an app I found called Headspace, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And in those spaces, I learned not to be afraid of fear, not to run from it or fight it or grab onto it to examine it, but just to sit with it, to recognize it, to step back and take a posture of curiosity 
noticing without the need to judge or change anything as counterintuitive as that sounds. If you're familiar with the world of Harry Potter, it always reminds me of Devil's Snare, which only grips you tighter the more you struggle against it. And after I started these clumsy experiments in prayer, things didn't go back to the way they were before, nor did I ever want them to. In learning to step back and pray, I started to learn to move beyond just ego-based reactions, which I recognized had made up so much of my life, and to move down to a place that was more real, where I could be more gracious with myself, and I could be more gracious with other people. And I wondered for the first time if I had discovered the Spirit of God dwelling inside me. That was a little over four years ago. And I have prayed in this way almost every day since, and it has continued to save my life. There have been stretches when I've been too busy or I thought it was unnecessary, but in those seasons, I found myself to be like the blindfolded man running through a forest, crashing into trees, but in way too much of a hurry to stop and take off my blindfold. I imagine that's how Jesus saw the disciples in this passage also, moving too quickly with too much work to be bothered to stop and take off your blindfold. It seems silly, but it's really hard for me to judge them because... It took my soul almost dying to start to try to figure it out. One of the many benefits of being a member of the Metanoia Sunday School class is exploring a variety of religious and spiritual teachings. And I had occasion early last Sunday morning to recall one of the practices that we've studied. So let me set the stage. I left the house early around seven to walk the dog. And within a minute, I found myself sprawled on the street at the end of my driveway with one shoe off, a badly scraped knee, and gravel digging into the heels of my hands. I had a body memory of getting tangled up somehow with a dog, but what stood out to me as I gingerly got up and limped my way back to my house was that I could barely remember walking down the driveway. I had been inside my head, thinking and planning and worrying, my thoughts skittering from one to another. My mind was not at rest. So back in the kitchen, clearing off my knee, I remembered what I had learned in our class about the Buddhist practice of mindfulness. And I resolved that I had to do something, because I didn't want to fall again, and I was going to practice mindfulness during my walks to empty my mind of my skittering thoughts. And I decided to do so by attending to the world of sound around me. I reasoned that by paying attention to each sound and letting it go as a new sound presented itself to my consciousness, I could anchor myself to the here and now, which is what my poor, unrested mind needed. 
So you might want to close your eyes for this next bit. This is what grounded my attention this morning on my walk. My muffled footfalls, gradations of the hiss of water as I drew close to a yard where sprinklers were on, and then the hiss fading as I left that yard behind. The rustle of leaves in a red oak tree, the metallic drone of an air conditioner that changed in volume as I advanced toward it and then moved past it. Two raucous blue jays over my head, soft, high-pitched bird song, the cooing of doves, a car passing on wooded acres, the rasp, buzz, and chirp of insects, the soft metallic clink of my dog's collar. These were the sounds that anchored me from one moment to the next. And attending to these sounds created inside me space for God and appreciation of the world and its wonderful gifts. I now return home with a rested mind. So about meditation, Pima Chodron has said, stay, stay, just stay. So I think I have amended that to listen, listen, just listen.